Knowing how to speak and understand a new language can be an invaluable tool when traveling, meeting new friends, or just even to master a new skill. But it's not always simple when you're bogged down by textbooks and structure classes. That's why so many people trust Rosetta Stone. Rosetta Stone is the most trusted language learning program, available on desktop or as an app. It truly immerses you in the language you want to learn, like Spanish, French, Italian, Chinese, and more. You won't just be studying English translations. The Rosetta Stone intuitive process helps you pick up a language naturally, first with words, then phrases, then sentences. Don't put off learning that language. There's no better time than right now to get started. For a very limited time, listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off. Visit rosettastone.com rs10. That's 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem your 50% off at rosettastone.com rs10 today. Last episode, journalist Kevin Fagan worked with Jackie Horn to find her sister, a deadhead who left Vermont for San Francisco. Bridget Pendle Williamson ended up homeless, addicted to drugs, and last spoke with her family in 1996. I found Jackie's old website on archive.org. One of the pages said investigative efforts. She writes, In January 2004, I heard about an article published in the San Francisco Chronicle about homelessness in the San Francisco area. This five-part series followed several San Francisco residents through their personal struggles as members of the homeless community. Kevin Fagan's article provided a premise by which to experience the sad existence of these individuals and their struggle to survive. Further, the photographic images captured the human element of a problem so appalling to the general public that they typically cringe at the sight. In no time, I contacted Kevin and Brandt in hopes that one of the many homeless that they had come in contact with was my sister. After a few telephone conversations, Kevin suggested that my search for Bridget would make a good story. I arrived in San Francisco a few weeks later. I was accompanied by Debbie Hartman, Kevin Fagan, and Brant Ward. Our first meeting began with a roundtable discussion of what we knew. We combed through the few things of Bridget's I had in hopes of finding some new clue that may bring us a few steps closer to finding her. Within a few hours, the four of us hit the streets of San Francisco. We began by visiting places we knew Bridget had been and talked to people who may have known her. We were able to find many people who shared information with us about my sister. Some of the information was older, but still helpful in the sense that we knew she had been in the city within the past five years. There is a fact that I must share in order to give you an idea of how receiving the homeless were of me. Not one homeless person attempted to hustle me. I wasn't solicited for money or even a single cigarette. Every person we spoke with stopped everything they were doing and gave me, Kevin, Debbie, and Brant their undivided attention. In some odd way, the attitudes and atmosphere not only gave me insight into homelessness, but more importantly, I felt comforted by the fact that my sister is or once was a member of a caring and relatively close-knit community. I walked the streets with her in San Francisco with Kevin Fagan and his photographer, Brant Ward. And Kevin knew the ins and outs of that area because of his incredible piece on homelessness in San Francisco. And he took us into crazy little places in wooded areas that we never would have gone to on our own. 
and we walked together while she was handing out flyers. I spoke with Debbie Hartman, Deputy Public Administrator for Santa Cruz. She was also looking for her sister, so when you have that drive, it really... You can, you can find so much more information, I think, sometimes when you have that certain drive, even more than, than people who have these fancy databases and government things at their fingertips. There's just something about it when it's inside you. She called San Francisco and was trying to make a missing persons report. And they said no, because Bridget was over 18. She was an adult. She could do what she wanted to do. So they wouldn't take the missing person report. And I understand what their detectives were saying. I don't know if she called sheriff, if she called the police department or who there, but they went by that she was an adult. So technically they weren't considering her missing. She called Santa Cruz. I don't know if she knew Bridget was here once in a while or had been here at one time, but she put a shot out to see if that would work. And our coroners take the missing persons report. They received it and realized that they were mandated to take this report within four hours and and they did. So they asked me if I wanted to handle it. I was like, yes, please. I would love to take a look at that. And that's how I came to know Bridget. She was a mom. She was a sister. She was a daughter. Maybe she made some bad options in her life, but certainly doesn't deserve to, to just be forgotten and tossed away. My name is Karen Sinanu Towery. I led up the homicide unit there in Santa Clara County for a number of years and started a cold case unit. I think from the history of man, prostitutes have been targeted. It's a little different now because there's not as much street prostitution. The internet changed that business model. A lot of people make their connections online and women are not in as much danger as they were when they were walking the streets. They still, you know, prostitutes still will do a meetup through the internet and they will they will be abused or ultimately killed by someone, but the street prostitutes have always had it bad. You'll read stories about communities that the, where the police department put that way down on their list of priorities and those women are forgotten. The case I just worked on for the last eight years and got my client out and found factually innocent, there was a connected murder case. It's out of Sacramento. And my investigator and I, who he was a retired San Jose deputy chief, we both worked really hard on this innocence case and had went up to the California Supreme Court, had hearings in Sacramento, and we solved a related homicide of a woman who was a, a street woman, and, and Sacramento's done nothing. They had all the leads back in 98. We handed them more information on a silver platter They did nothing. They've done nothing. And I know that because during our evidentiary hearing on my case, the judge allowed me to go into the sheriff's file. And there was a note saying, oh, the Innocence Project says they have information. But someone just took the note and put it in the file and did nothing. 
And a lot of agencies are like this. It's like, oh, well, they just don't give priority to prostitutes. You know, they, there's nothing. There's there, there's no one in their corner. There's no one calling saying, are you going to solve my daughter's murder? You know, it's really heartbreaking. Really hard. They become non-people, these women. Part of it is the instinct of people. These are people that the community at large, like they go, oh, I wish we didn't have prostitution. I wish we didn't have homeless. So when one person in that population disappears, they're, they don't care that much. I mean, yeah, you could have somebody with a badge and a gun who's done this the whole time and their father did this and their father before them did this. And, and yay for you, that's really true. But sometimes these folks who come out here and just look at this and it's just a different way of processing that information and that way of processing the information might give a good lead. It's not an insult to anybody who's working hard on it. It's just somebody looking at it and saying, well, hey, you know, this might be a way to, to link up or find an answer. It's very much like death row. You look at a death row in any state, it's not that they're people of color that's so amazing. It's that the victims are white people. The overwhelming number of victims of perpetrators on death row are white people. And that's because the communities care about their white people. It's really shocking. It's reflective of what the community, the issues the community cares about. And they care about homelessness and prostitution and drug use. They care about it because they want it to disappear. So when one of the population disappears, they, they don't get exercised over it. The community doesn't. And when the community doesn't, oftentimes law enforcement reflects that. It's a bias that most people wouldn't admit. I'm an old Caucasian lady and I, <laughs> I, I've seen this, this bias my entire career, it's just there. Hopefully we'll get away from it, but it's there. Jackie asked Brant if she could see all of his photos from the series, Shame of the City. And she saw the picture of the crier who was lying on the sidewalk uh, in a sleeping bag or with blankets on her. And Jackie thought that that person looked a lot like Bridget. Here's Debbie Hartman again, the deputy public administrator who helped Jackie Horn, Bridget's sister. The people were very receptive to her. And in fact, she came across Cosmic Charlie, I think was a neighbor or a friend of Bridget's, just somewhere down in the hate. He went by Cosmic Charlie Aldo. He maybe was in his 40s. He was receptive and talkative, and he was going to show us something and open his backpack and then decided to change his mind and didn't do that. And people wanted to help. I think they volunteered information that they thought they knew or if they didn't know or thought we wanted to hear, but it was out there, and, and she tried really hard. And after um, after the the article was in the paper... I remember my phone was just jammed with people who had seen that and they had thought they'd seen her 
or they were missing a relative for quite some time, would I be able to help them find the relative? It was incredible the number of people that read it and responded. It'll always be alive until we find otherwise. It's more than likely, but I'm not going to say I think she's deceased. Just no proof of it yet. Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price. Priceline. Another page from Jackie's website was titled, Details of Disappearance. She said, on December 24th of 1996, Bridget Pendle Williamson moved to San Francisco, California with a male friend. They moved into a rent-by-week hotel. Her family never saw or heard from her again. We are certain that by the late 1990s, Bridget was addicted to both heroin and cocaine. She was last known to have been using between 20 and 30 bags of heroin and two to three grams of cocaine intravenously per day. She had been on methadone in the past, and maybe again. Through investigation, we've learned that Bridget spent many nights homeless on the streets of the Tenderloin and Mission areas of San Francisco, and may have stayed at the following hotels. She then lists four rent-by-week hotels. Information obtained through investigation suggests that Bridget was last known to have been working as a prostitute in the area of 16th and 19th off of Cap Street in San Francisco. Her distinguishing characters are listed as a yellow rose tattoo on her upper thigh, light blue cat tattoo wearing a pearl necklace on her lower abdomen, tribal tattoo on her right bicep, and a one and a half to two inch bilateral scar on her inner elbow region. She wrote, Beginning in the early 1990s, Bridget began following the Grateful Dead rock band and continued to do so for several years. This has been a defining piece of our search for her. I guess we ought to thank you a lot for coming on out here today. Hope it's been a lot of fun. And now, ladies and gentlemen, Mr. Bill Graham. From Marin County, California, to Watkins Glen, in New York, here we go, the Grateful Dead. At the age of 15, Mitchell Weiser bought two tickets to Summer Jam and planned to take his friend Larry to see the Grateful Dead. Larry's mom did not approve, so Mitchell asked his girlfriend, and she said yes. When Mitchell ran his plans by his mom, she didn't approve either. She argued with him, and when she realized she couldn't stop him, she tried to give him money but he refused and brushed past her, heading out the door. Mitchell's girlfriend, Bonita Bickwit, worked at a summer camp in New York. She asked for the night off to see the concert, but her boss said no. So at the age of 16, she decided to quit her job, collect her last check, and head to the show anyways. Mitchell took a cab to the camp Bonita worked at and spent most of the $25 he brought to get there. He called his sister to let her know that he made it there safe, but he was almost out of money. His sister tried to get him to come back home. He decided to head out anyways. He was determined to see the dead. 
They plan on hitchhiking there. The camp worker who drove them to Narrowsburg said they were standing on the side of the road trying to hitch another ride when he drove away. They were never seen again. Benita Bonnie Bickwit and Mitchell Mitch Weiser were not alone. There were others just like them, standing along State Route 97 with nothing but backpacks, sleeping bags, cardboard signs, and tickets for that weekend's show. Some, like Bonnie and Mitch, were only 15, 16 years old. Many had defied their parents, maybe even pushed past an overprotective older sister. And they walked right out that door after they'd just been warned to not walk out that door. Before that, they were asked the standard questions. Questions like, the hell was in Watkins Glen that you couldn't get in Brooklyn? Honestly, they didn't know all that much about Watkins Glen. It was nowheresville. They knew it had a racetrack, the Grand Prix Raceway it was called. And they knew this because that coming Saturday, July 28th, 1973, the racetrack was the site of Summer Jam, an all-day, all-night concert featuring the Grateful Dead, the Almond Brothers Band, and the band. And nothing was going to stop them from going. Though their overprotective sisters didn't want to admit it, they'd done the exact same thing just four years earlier, due east in a little town called Woodstock. Okay, technically it was a little town near Woodstock, but same difference. Bonnie and Mitch were lucky enough to get a lift for part of the way, but they still had 75 more miles to go. Every time they held up their big piece of cardboard, the one with Watkins Glen written on it with a ballpoint pen, it felt like their efforts were in vain. At least they had each other. Some made it to Watkins Glen that weekend. Others did not. The truly unlucky ones found themselves trapped somewhere between here and there, in Purgatory, which, on Friday, July 27th, the day before the big show, happened to be a two-lane blacktop that led into town. Traffic was stalled for miles. Cars were abandoned. Hippies trudged on in bare feet. The sun beat down on all that steel idling on asphalt. And the weatherman said it was gonna be close to 90 degrees that day, but damn if it didn't feel even hotter. Those who stayed in their cars could pick up the faint signal of the station CFR on their AM or FM dial. CFR stood for Concert Free Radio, a Hartford pirate radio station masquerading as a Canadian outfit that broadcast live traffic and safety reports directly from an RV parked at the Grand Prix Raceway. The CFR station was how everyone in Purgatory on that Friday afternoon heard that the highway had officially been shut down. Jim Coplick, one of the festival's promoters, got the same message, but he heard it directly from the New York State Thruway Authority. That was a phone call he wasn't expecting. Jim panicked if the highway was shut down, if people couldn't get to Watkins Glen, he was going to have to refund tickets. He and his co-promoter, Shelley Finkel, would lose their shirts. Jim's second show, promoting the Grateful Dead, would also be his last. The dead would never work with him again. They'd already tried to kill him. Well, not the dead themselves, but Big Steve Parrish, one of their roadies. All Jim did was walk onto the stage and try to introduce himself. Parrish wasn't in a making new friends kind of mood. Besides, he'd already met the promoter, and it wasn't Jim Coplick. Jim tried to explain that he was co-promoting the show with Shelley Finkel, but by that point, Parrish had grabbed him and picked him up and was now tossing Jim's body like a half-eaten cheese sandwich on Shakedown Street. Luckily, Jim Coplick didn't have to suffer the humiliation of being dropped 14 feet onto the ground by a roadie in front of a massive audience. By the time the audience got there, 
Jim had bigger problems on his hands than a pissed off Steve Parrish. Jim and Shelley knew the show was going to be a big deal. The previous year, a few members of the Allman Brothers band sat in during the dead set in Hartford, and ever since, fans had clamored for an encore. Woodstock was still a not-so-distant fond memory, and enough time had passed since the shit show at Altamont so as not to make too many people nervous about bringing throngs of hippies to a small rural town. Legendary concert promoter Bill Graham was brought in to help with the staging in the backstage area. As co-headliners, the Dead and the Almonds were offered $110,000 each. Ticket prices were set at $10 a pop. Jim and Shelley expected somewhere between 100,000 and 150,000 people to show up. And their estimates were way off. Two weeks before the show, 100,000 tickets had been sold, and they continued to sell. Three days before, on Wednesday, 50,000 people had arrived and were already setting up tents on the site. And by that Friday, when the highway was clogged and it looked like Jim and Shelley were up Schitt's Creek, all 150,000 tickets they'd allocated had been sold. But there were currently 200,000 people on site. Those who didn't have tickets were just let in. Jim and Shelley weren't about to let an angry mob tear down $30,000 worth of fencing like they had at Woodstock. They had no choice. When it came to soundcheck, which was scheduled for that day, the bands had no choice but to do it in front of 200,000 people. And he didn't just do a normal sound check when that many people were watching. The band quote-unquote sound checked for 40 minutes. The Allman Brothers played for over 90 minutes. And the Grateful Dead, well, they did what the Grateful Dead usually did. Ignored their own business interests in favor of delivering for the faithful. In this instance, that meant two sets, nearly two hours. A gesture of goodwill to the thousands who now stood before them. Sugary, Tennessee Jet, Mexicali Blues, Warfrat. The Dead Soundcheck performance from that Friday at Watkins Glen has since gained legendary status among tape traders. Not only because it was unplanned, but because it included an untitled 18-minute jam that was just as unpredictable as the weekend was turning out to be. Jim Koplick and Shelley Finkel, meanwhile, weren't prepared for unpredictable. And they were quickly finding out that people were nothing if not unpredictable. They kept coming. Hundreds, thousands more. Even though the highway had been shut down, how is it possible? Jim Koplick was asking himself that question when he got a second call from New York State to let him know that the highway had opened back up, which meant that traffic was flowing and it was headed directly for Watkins Glen. Jim's fears suddenly shifted from the possibility of having to refund tickets to the inevitability that they hadn't properly planned for that many people. There wouldn't be enough food or water. And as the sun went down that Friday night, they came to the sobering realization that there was only so much they could control. The rest was out of their hands. Nothing left to do but wait. Summer Jam at Watkins Glen on Saturday, July 28, 1973, went down in history as the Grateful Dead's biggest show ever. And, according to the Guinness Book of World Records, set a new world record for, quote, the largest audience at a pop festival, unquote. The final headcount was somewhere around 600,000 people. Four times what was expected. You think Woodstock was a big deal? This was way bigger. Do a Google image search for Watkins Glen 1973 to get a sense of the enormity of the thing. And all things considered, Jim and Shelley got lucky. The same couldn't be said for everyone else. During the band set late Saturday afternoon, as rain clouds darkened the sky and thunder echoed from out in the distance, 
four skydivers jumped from a single-engine plane overhead to parachute into the show. They each held an orange flare to light their way as they descended. One of the skydivers, Willard Smith, 35 years old, let his flare get a little too close to his clothes. He burst into flames in the air. He was later found in a nearby wooded area, burned to death. 150 other people were treated at nearby hospitals for injuries, many of which had something to do with a combination of alcohol and either Downs or PCP, the latter of which had been sold as grass to unsuspecting buyers. And then there were others, like Bonnie Bickwick and Mitch Weiser, who were never heard from again. Some got tired of waiting along that broken down highway that led into Watkins Glen. They turned around and went home. Some drifted along with the exodus that left the raceway at the end of that weekend, headed to other points south, west, and east, like they had never even been there at all. But Bonnie and Mitch were gone. Did they even make it to Summer Jam? Did they ditch on purpose and go somewhere else? Somewhere where the wind don't blow so strange, or did the road have other plans for them? Did they encounter a situation they couldn't get themselves out of? Something an overprotective sister would file under? I told you so. Something unpredictable. This isn't the first time in this series that we've ran into deadheads attempting to hitchhike and then vanishing. Jennifer Wilmer was said to be hitchhiking to a farm in California. Bonita Bickwit and Mitchell Weiser were standing on the side of the road with a cardboard sign in hopes of attending Summer Jam, the biggest concert since Woodstock. While researching Bridget's case, I found Debbie Hartman, a deputy public administrator out of Santa Cruz, who had her own theory of who is responsible for Bridget's death. I just think he could be likely. His victims were very similar to Bridget in that they were women on the street, they were in the Cap Street area, they were drug users, they had long brown hair, and they were very vulnerable. What I knew about him or learned about him and his, I think his sister or cousin who had done a kind of extensive story about him online was that he would kind of start off with women maybe being nice to him and then and moving in and, and being abusive and trying to kill them. But I think he, he was, he'd gotten away with things before. I mean, that's just my thought on it, which is why he tried to push this woman in the, the ocean. And it couldn't have been the first time he would have done that. And when he thought he had killed that woman and rolled her up in a plastic bag and tossed her in the ocean, no one would have found her. But she survived. Around the same time that Bonita and Mitchell went missing, a serial killer was on the loose in California. The Santa Rosa Hitchhiker Murders began in February of 1972. Two middle school students, aged 12 and 13, were leaving a skating rink and last seen hitching a ride. Their bodies were stripped naked and thrown down a steep embankment off of the roadway. Their remains were skeletal and the cause of death could not be determined. A series of similar killings happened from 1972 to 1974 and the FBI issued a report stating that 14 unsolved homicides in this time frame were committed by the same perpetrator. Some believe it was the work of the Zodiac Killer. Some say it was Ted Bundy. But could they have been committed by Jack Bogan? And it just could also be that her remains were never found. If Jack Bogan had been successful in 
pushing Amber in into the ocean and having her sink down, he could have been successful with other people before that. I would love to find out who Amber M is because if he circled the area where Bridget lived and she was also working the streets and around that area, maybe she knew Bridget. I don't know if Amber M is a pseudonym or if her real name is Amber and her real last name is M, uh, beginning with M or not, but that might be somebody to look for. Like Ted Bundy, Jack Boken lived two very different lives at the same time. He ran a plumbing business, was married, and had three kids. He was known to be funny, talented at chess, and a very good piano player. But since the age of 10, he had been a sexual predator. His first victim was his three-year-old cousin in 1953. 46 years later, he sat in court with a 21-year-old Cap Street prostitute known only as Amber M. She described to the court how Jack attempted to kill her. On October 4th, Boken pulled up to Cap Street in his white Cadillac and solicited Amber. After being sexually assaulted, Amber suffered two skull fractures from what she believed to be a hammer used on the back of her head. He put her in the trunk, and she played dead as she was wrapped in a plastic garbage bag, which she later bit through in order to breathe. Eventually, Jack pulled over and threw her into a bay. While in the water, Amber managed to get out of the plastic and with incredible strength swam to a dock, then jumped a barbed wire fence and flagged down a motorist. In 2000, there was applause as Boken was sentenced to 231 years to life in prison for sexually assaulting several sex workers in San Francisco. He was also convicted of trying to murder one of the victims. It wasn't only Debbie who thought Jack Boken could be responsible for Bridget's murder. While he was in prison, Jackie Horn wrote letters to Jack Boken. She asked him if he knew what happened to Bridget. He denied knowing her and said, you should have got help for your sister sooner. Heroin is a dead end. So are the Grateful Dead. He's such a candidate for this type of crime. He's a violent guy. He was a violent guy. And he took a lot of risks. And he had this I don't really give a damn type of attitude. Thanks for checking out Dead and Gone. Dead and Gone is written, hosted, and produced by Payne Lindsay and Jake Brennan. Check out Jake's other music and true crime show, Disgraceland, about musicians getting away with murder and behaving very badly, as well as Payne's other shows, Radio Rental, Atlanta Monster, and Up and Vanished. Dead and Gone is a production of Tenderfoot TV and Double Elvis, and brought to you by Cadence 13 and executive produced by Donald Albright, Payne Lindsay, Brady Sadler, and Jake Brennan. This show is produced by myself, Mike Rooney, Alex Vespasted, and Eric Quintana. Mixed by Cooper Skinner. Music by Makeup and Vanity Set. With additional music services by Ryan Spraker. Additional mixing by Matt Bowden. Additional writing by Zeth Lundy. Copy edited by Pat Healy. Research and reporting by Eric Tricky. Cover design by Matt Mills for mattmillsart.com. Special thanks to Orrin Rosenbaum and Grace Royer from UTA, Ryan Nord, Jesse Nord, and Matthew Papa from the Nord Group, Chris Cochran and the Cadence 13 team 
Beck Media and Marketing, Station 16, and the teams at Tenderfoot TV and Double Elvis. And as always, thank you for your support.